When it comes to self-development, no matter the method you use, the vital point is to practice. If you're ready to transform your life and claim the potential inside of you, then you're in the right place. Welcome back to the Vital Point Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Schechter. As a transformation coach and breathwork facilitator, I'm invested in making the dynamic landscape of personal evolution accessible. My goal is to inspire you to take action for yourself. You have the capacity to evolve and bring your intentions and dreams into the world. And there's never been more access to so many incredible modalities that can help you on your journey. This podcast will help you learn simple methods you can use to transform your life and share the stories of practitioners who are doing the work so that you feel inspired to go and practice because that's the vital point. My guest on this episode needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway. Dennis Walker has more than 10 years experience as a multimedia professional. He's a satirist that's been featured in Rolling Stone and Forbes. He was the 2022 Psychedelic Influencer of the Year at the Entheo Awards, a journalist for Lucid News and published in Psychedelic Alpha, Psychedelics Today, Honeysuckle Mag, Global Cannabis Time, Psychedelic Spotlight, the NAMA Quarterly, and more. And is a puppeteer at the Psychedelic Puppet Show. His platform, uh, Mycopreneur and the Mycopreneur Podcast, is the leading mushroom publication following the emerging psychedelic industry and the cultural, historical, spiritual, and medicinal use of traditional functional mushrooms. The platform has gained international acclaim and mainstream recognition with millions of video views, high-profile collaborations, and partnerships with major conferences in the psychedelic space. And it was just a pleasure to reach out to Dennis. He's been very gracious with his time and um, answering questions. And uh, to have this conversation, which we had before we met in person at the recent MAPS conference in Denver. And it was quite... Uh, interesting to get to see Dennis in action there. You know, I think on one day he had a panel, he was on stage with Lucid News, he was part of a workshop on psychedelic storytelling and just running around like a madman uh, throughout the conference. And it was just really cool to get to touch base with him, to see him in person and to get to know him a little bit better after this initial conversation. And uh, what a conversation it was. This episode dips into discussion of satire and skepticism, the value of the authentic slow route and enjoying the journey, the possible future of the quote unquote psychedelic renaissance and the emerging industry, including any disconnects, ironies and opportunities that seem to be fresh in both of our minds. And then we got into a really cool conversation about integration and what Dennis has learned in his experience working with mushrooms and other entheogens for many years. I'd like to take a moment and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Cultivating Wisdom. Cultivating Wisdom is a brand created as a way of life for people to reconnect with their authentic selves. The call to action is to find what makes you touch into your own heart in many cases, what you find there is going to be wisdom. 
the wisdom to know right from wrong, the wisdom to love oneself first and spread that love to others, the wisdom to share your passions with those around you. And if you are watching the video, you see I'm rocking one of their amazing shirts now. Cultivating wisdom is the process of developing and deepening one's understanding of life and the world around you. It involves learning from experience, reflecting on your thoughts and feelings and engaging in meaningful conversations with others. And I couldn't think of another brand that's more aligned with the vision of the podcast than that right there. This cultivation is a lifelong journey of self-discovery and growth. And they have such a wonderful mission through honest dialogue and through sharing their personal experiences to start conversations about human potential and to approach cultivating wisdom with an open heart and an open mind that makes everything and anything possible. When I had the founder of Cultivating Wisdom, Caesar Marin, on the podcast for episode 62, he talked about the desire for these clothes to spark conversation, to, you know, really get people curious about the transformative uh, potential in psychedelics and specifically through uh, mushrooms and to engage people's childlike curiosity. And I've experienced that wearing cultivating wisdom shirts myself, you know, just like this microdosing shirt that I'm wearing. People have literally stopped me and said, Hey, uh, Oh, that's a cool shirt. Or like I, I microdose too. Or, you know, they've had questions about it. I even ended up running into some, somebody from work one day on the trail and they were like, Oh, Hey, um, I wanted to ask you something about your shirt the next time I saw them, you know, and we had a little conversation about microdosing, which was pretty cool. And Caesar is an amazing human being. It was really cool to get to meet him at the maps conference as well. And just be around his very beautiful, infectious energy. You know, there's so much playfulness and just beauty in his spirit. And so I really appreciate his support of the Vital Point podcast and invite you to cultivate your own wisdom by going to cultivatingwisdom.net and using the code TVP20 for 20% off. That's TVP20, like the Vital Point 20, for 20% off at cultivatingwisdom.net. Thank you so much, Cultivating Wisdom, for supporting and sponsoring this episode of the Vital Point Podcast. And now, without further ado, my conversation with Dennis Walker, the micropreneur. All right. Dennis Walker, welcome to the Vital Point Podcast. Hey, thanks, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. Hello, everybody. <laughs> I was actually hoping this was the uh, customer service line for the spiritual bypassing coach uh, waiting list. We can go there real quick if you want to, because <laughs> I'm used to dealing with customers with similar worldviews. I guess we could just jump in with this kind of the satire. Like, I know that wasn't your initial intent for your brand and like your 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 persona, right? It just kind of came up organically. A hundred percent. You know, I've always had kind of a comedic streak 
And like, for example, I won class clown senior year of high school and was in the yearbook, but I never led with that part of my personality. And I very much came to the world of podcasting and the more formal psychedelic in crowd, if you will, of like the conference scene and the, the companies and all of that happening. I led with a very straight face and more of a journalistic platform. And then at a certain point, I discovered that this was actually something that I feel was missing is this sense of humor, not taking ourselves so seriously, uh, you know, for, for a space that's built around molecules and experiences that supposedly destroy the ego. I noticed there was a lot of, including myself, a lot of very large egos. And so, you know, I, I started doing satire randomly one day and it took off. And then I realized maybe that's my most vivacious, authentic contribution to the space more so than another serious, somber platform. Yeah. So, um, I'm curious, like, are there ever people that come to you and they're like, man, I really love your content. Um, sort of oblivious to maybe that you're, there's some of the people that you're poking at. Cause I know you're in these like really interesting rooms now, right? Yeah. Often. I think part of the success of the approach I've taken is I keep it very ambiguous and open-ended. And as a trusted confidant of the podcast and the platform told me, he's like, all of them are going to think you're talking about their competition, which is pretty ideal, right? Because I think also, to be frank, a lot of people who are kind of at the vanguard of some of these larger companies and the people working alongside them, they have very robust senses of humor is what I've gathered. But because of their you know, positioning within the landscape, their, their relationships to investors and to funds and things like that, they're not necessarily able to show that side of themselves, right? And that's something that comes with the territory mm. of being like a larger, more entrenched player who has funding, who has boards of directors to answer to, et cetera. Whereas I think they see me having this independent platform where I don't really have to answer to anyone as being someone they can actually pitch ideas to, things that they want to say. So surprisingly, quite a few ideas, including the one I'm currently working on today, have been pitched to me by people who are in pretty well-funded, highly capitalized companies and so on and so forth. And also therapists along the same lines. You know, there's people that I, I have a very robust network of friends and colleagues within the psychedelic space. And some of them have very public-facing positions where it wouldn't behoove them to you know, make fun of their clients essentially, or make fun of kind of a, an investor type, but I can do it. So I think that's almost sort of like a value added thing where they go, okay, this is the jester, he's in his lane. We can't necessarily have our public image stray into that lane because you know we're involved in the serious therapeutic clinical mental health conversation, which isn't always able to segue into more of the South Park, Trevor Noah, Stephen Colbert lane, which is what I'm occupying, but we can feed ideas and you can be our mouthpiece. So that's kind of, in a nutshell, some of what's been happening lately. I'm glad you mentioned the jester because it's it's something that came up as I was thinking about our conversation. It's like, um, you know, when I think of comedians, there's like, there's people that are telling jokes and then there's like an echelon that I think really good comedians reach where they're like, they're able to give you this social commentary or this satire or this, um, the things that everybody's thinking, but nobody feels like they have, can say, like, just like what you're saying. And it's almost like that jester archetype, right? Because the jester was the only one that could get away with making fun of the king to his face. 
and not get his head chopped off. So like, it's a really interesting sort of energy that you're channeling there in that space. Yeah, that's something that I've only recently recognized. I think that the pieces were all there, but I didn't set out to become this jester or a satirist or whatever. In fact, I had never described myself as a satirist until about a year ago. And I realized that that was something that the space is missing and that people sort of conferred that status upon me. I was, right. and still do, operating from the heart, operating from top of mind, employing a lot of principles of improv and of newsjacking, which is this principle or this approach to the media landscape where you take current events and major players and characters that are relevant and you respond to what's happening. And I realized The Onion is so popular, right? As sort of a news outlet. And a lot of people take The Onion and Saturday Night, Saturday Night Live and The Colbert Report, et cetera, more seriously then they actually take something like Fox News or CNN. And I realized that this is a really missing opportunity right here for the psychedelic space because we're dealing with non-ordinary states of consciousness. We're dealing with substances that very often, you know, can cause you to be tricked, you know, by trying to figure out like what is ultimate reality. And that's a very personal interpretation that a lot of people have to make. And part of the, the nature of the work I do is, be skeptical. Like, how do you know this entity or this spirit or this vision or download you have is in fact correct truth fundamentally in reality? And so that's, you know, another beast to look at. But I think that this idea of being skeptical, both of, you know, power structures, be skeptical of the government, be skeptical of major companies pitching you certain ideas, be skeptical of your own thoughts, right? I think that's one of the components and that satire lends itself really well to unpacking these experiences where, you know, I've been around a lot of self-proclaimed spiritual authorities, which I can get into just over the years of being a psychonaut and traveling a lot and interacting with communities in places like Tulum or Ubud or Venice Beach or San Francisco. I've been around a lot of these like very self-assured, you know, spiritual founder types. And I've developed a very healthy and callous degree of skepticism around a lot of these sort of movements, be it the, the spiritual wellness movement or the yoga movement or the, you know, green tech movement of people proclaiming that this is the way forward. Uh, some of them are probably correct, but I think skepticism and having a sense of humor about the whole thing is really is a good habit and a, a mindfulness practice to build in to your own approach as you're starting to navigate different substances and communities and, and the way forward together. Yeah, absolutely. Skepticism is, is super important, especially considering, like you're saying, how these medicines can sometimes trick us. And I think one of the best pieces of integration advice that I have ever gotten was don't make any major life decisions in like the first couple of weeks after, you know, a macrodose. Because, uh, yeah, you get these really grand ideas, you get really, you know, sort of these visions or these things that seem so real and so true and so, so strong. And you're like, I got to do that. And, um, you know, I'm sure that, you know, people have made some really, <laughs> some really weird decisions based on that. Probably some businesses that you've, uh, you know, encountered and work with are like kind of based off of those type of things. And um yeah, not always the the best decision, right? <laughs> yeah, and you know, I want to qualify that by saying like I also have built a lot of what I do around inspiration from my psychedelic experiences, of course, 
but there's kind of like a fundamentally satirical principle when for reality 10 years ago, 12, when for example, 10 or 12 years ago, I was down in the Amazon at an ayahuasca center finishing a ceremony. And then the 21 year old kid next to me starts telling me how he had a vision during the ceremony that he's going to headline Coachella and his band's going to be famous. And I'm like, that's like a really big vision, dude. Like, awesome. Go for it. But at the same time, like, I don't know if you want to, you know, quit your day job and, and orient everything around the fact that you just had this experience telling you that you're the, you know, the face of the music industry. And I think mm -hmm. that's pretty common for a lot of people to have similar experiences, you know, right. and that's one of the things I've been skeptical about with like people getting into the business side now that psychedelics are trending, you know, and, and mushrooms are trending where people who jumped in a year ago or, or, or less are proclaiming that they have visions that they're going to help a hundred million people and things like that. And I think like, it's a very noble approach, but also part of, as you mentioned, the work you do about having integration, being able to connect with elders. Like, I just think that the performative nature that we have cultivated with social media and with this capitalistic idea of bigger, better, faster, it's really comical when you apply that to the timelines of spirituality and psychedelic experience where you know, there's this sense of immediacy that we have in our world where it's like, I had this vision, this download, I'm going to jump into it. I'm going to scale. I'm going to build this business. And that's actually, I think, the opposite of what we should be doing moving forward as a quote industry is uh, it, I don't think that the sort of capitalist, bigger, better scaling now, more money, unicorn timeline applies that well to, you know, millions of people having these visions that they're going to be you know, the, the most important person in this space and whatnot. So again, everything I'm saying with a grain of salt, I, I have a very sort of open-ended ecosystem approach. Mm -hmm. And that's what I advise people to do is like get involved, build connections, you know, uh, straighten out relationships with your neighbors and your family first before you try to get a hundred million clients and Godspeed, good luck to you with your vision. Yeah. Yeah. There's certainly like a balance. Um, it's it's been one of the things that's frustrated me about moving more into this industry coming from like more of a corporate uh you know background like i worked for seven years in management at trader joe's and then for 10 years at, at, for a government contractor and when i started working with people in these you know sort of circles one of the things that i encountered was like that i couldn't I, sometimes I couldn't trust what people said. Like we would have meetings and there, it would be like really exciting. And they'd be like, yeah, we're going to like move full speed ahead with this. And then all of a sudden there'd be crickets. And I was coming from this environment where like at, there was at least um, I'll say like a base level of accountability and processes and systems and like a certain amount of let's say professionalism. And I'm sure that there are lots of companies that have, really solid business plans and, you know, business skills. And I've also encountered, you know, folks where it's like they're in it and they've got, you know, they're, they're, they've dove in, they're fully invested. And yet there's not a whole lot of like business acumen there. And it's just, it makes me a little bit wary, you know, I'm like, uh, like, just like you're saying, like, you don't have to scale up so fast, like build the foundation of your business a little bit regardless of the industry that you're in, you know, so that you can have more success in the long term. 
Yeah, I think one of the principles there in play is there's sort of a temporal dislocation with a psychedelic experience where, you know, a lot of people have described it or experienced it where it's like your whole life is happening at once and you can see the future and it's all so clear. And this is great. This is really inspiring. But then when you try to put that plan into action and all of a sudden you're butting up against, you know, tons of other people who have similar plans and ideas and you just have to be a little bit more patient and flexible. Like, and the funny part is, that's something that I experienced back at 18 is like, I was very much in the throes in the midst of like the tech bubble, Silicon Valley, you know, going to school in San Francisco, as I often talk about, that was a very formative period of my life where I was connected to movers and shakers in the tech industry and going to cocktail hours and networking. But my psychedelic experiences kind of showed me almost like a smoke and mirrors facade that was mm. happening at some of these companies. And, and, you know, the, almost like the fakeness I've lived in LA too. And I've heard other people describe that. where like, you go to a party and people are only interested in you insofar as what you can do for them. You know, what networks sure. you're part of who, you know, and, and okay. Like I've done a degree of that too. Like I pitched to people, I want to find a reciprocal relationship, but with psychedelics, there was something that drove me away from that sense of uh, almost like the emperor has no clothes. Right. And start looking at some of these companies and being like, so what is it you do exactly? You know what, you know, what's this, and I think there's a, you know, a very real risk of the psychedelic renaissance, quote unquote, uh, bursting as a bubble because of all the hype that people have put into. And I've noticed the crypto crowd pivot over, right? And then there's the sort of biotech crowd that's pivoted over. And maybe four or five years ago, it was like this honeymoon phase of the psychedelic renaissance where you had companies getting funded with, you know, $100 million plus funding rounds. And now you look at it and it's like, I know a lot of the investors and funds in the space and like dry powder, as they call it, or capital is very hard to come by right now. And, you know, it's just uh, a very different direction than a lot of people saw it taking. And there are some powerful players that are betting on the long run on right, these FDA approved processes, probably in tandem with very specific demographics and, and environments like, you know, the military is a big, uh, a big draw right now. People talking about how this can help soldiers with PTSD and things like that, or, you know, certain like the elderly populations and in nursing homes, if you can help them with dementia and, you know, there's very like niche things, I think. But as we're seeing, like a clinic opening in Oregon, charging $3,500 for a psilocybin session or psilocybin mushroom session, like that's going to be really tough for this quote renaissance to sustain that level of business model when people start to realize how accessible and how community driven and underground and effective a lot of these practices are and that you can't patent these things. Like you literally, you, are, you cannot patent nature and nature has provided this robust ecosystem of molecules and also containers and frameworks and communities to, to integrate into and to attach to. So I think it's just a, it's a really interesting time. I'm glad that people are turning on to psychedelics. I'm not at all opposed to a clinical therapeutic FDA approved model, but this bottleneck that's, you know, arguably increasingly being rolled out in the media of like, you have to go take psychedelics for mental health issues specifically. That's such a myopic view of the whole space. Like, you know, I, so we can get into that in depth, but that's part of what I sort of rail against is this fundamental assertion that psychedelics or mushrooms treat depression and PTSD. That's such a very narrow offering of, I think, what the whole message that we're getting is. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's really 
challenging to know which direction to go in. And like you're saying, there are underground communities and there are people that have been supporting these mycelial networks for a long time. And it's it's really curious where they're going to go, because I think you make some good points about like, regardless of where whether you think that a psychedelic industry is good or not, it's here. And there's a lot of money being thrown at it, as you're saying. And, you know, some of those underground folks can't really compete with, you know, having millions of dollars of capital at your disposal. Um, so for me, I think it would be better just to go a different way for those people, you know, like let the, let the industry be where it's going to be. And then if you don't feel like you align with that, like what's stopping you from creating your own network, from having a community-based, uh, you know, kind of network of, of care and the way that you want to support people and the, the way that you want to work with the medicine, you know? And obviously that's not 100% legal, but who's to say that that's right, you know, especially when the people that are dictating or influencing some of the laws are the ones with all the money that are, you know, it's like, that doesn't, doesn't seem quite right to me personally. I'm very supportive of alternate models. You know, if that's what's going to work for people and that's the bigger picture, I think is like, can these improvement, can these FDA approved treatments and processes, can they help people? Can they help a lot of people? For example, as I often say, like my parents or people in my family, they would never go through an underground provider, just like point blank. Right. right. And there's a, a lot of other challenges that crop up around that too. But like, if you go through an FDA approved clinical process where everything is standardized and, you know, you have guaranteed purity and you have a good framework around it and it's effective, like, why wouldn't we support that model? So like, I right. think that's where the gesture, I guess, comes in is I've had various critics or people being like, you know, you're, you're selling out, like you're out there consorting with pharmaceutical companies and whatnot. And for me, it's like, yeah, but I'm also kind of sounding the alarm, if you will, that there are different approaches for different people. And I don't know what the future landscape looks like in the next few years. I think it would be hubristic of me to venture, you know, such a strong assertion that this is the way it's going to be. But I personally am advocating for and trying to help cultivate multiple routes of access. And one of those being, you know, sort of a closed loop pharmaceutical approach that's going to work for a lot of people. And the other one being kind of like a outlaw rebel way of doing it and connecting to those communities because they do exist. They're not terribly hard to find. And, you know, anyone who's ever been to Bonnaroo or Coachella or, you know, uh, Esalen or any of these places, uh, you're, you know that there's plenty of folks who are actively applying psychedelics to their life who are doing so without the blessing of the government. You, you mentioned like the the fact that, you know, sort of pigeonholing mushrooms or other psychedelics into these are the things that they treat. Um, that That's just a little bit silly, right? I mean, even, even some of the pharmaceuticals that we have today, um, the, the main use that we have for them is not the original use that they intended. So even like somebody that's going to get treat, okay, I'm going to treat my depression or my PTSD with psilocybin. And then who knows what other things they're unlocking within them. And so there, the disruption in that way, I think really makes it impossible to predict where this is all going to go. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think like the idea that psychedelics are a mental health treatment as a whole is quite a myopic view because in my understanding and in the background of the work that I've done and the communities I've been connected to, there's much broader issues in play right here that are socioeconomic and that are environmental, right? As far as determinants of what's causing a lot of the malaise mentally, why do we have a mental health crisis? And, you know, this is not new knowledge that I'm preaching here. It's this idea of, as I've also advocated for, I personally believe that universal basic income would be more effective at treating mental illness than taking a psychedelic therapeutic approach. And there's this idea which has come up recently and which is part of the satire that I'm doing today around having insurance providers pay for ketamine treatments where your employer essentially would pay for you to have a dissociative experience. And something like that is like actually quite brave new world dystopian to imagine this potential future, which there's been criticism against companies, you know, approaching MDMA in the same way of like, let's give this soldier MDMA to get them back on the battlefield to help them have, it's like, you know, that's pretty myopic in terms of like the same, like, you know, there's this homeless population or an unhoused population. Maybe if we can just get all of them drugs that make them feel better about their situation, or you have a shitty job, well, here, go dissociate for the night. And then that'll, you know, it's kind of like what alcohol has been pitched to do, right? Where um, right. actually the definition I've got for psychedelics from some leading people, and again, I'm not a big name namer, you know, but like leading people in the movement, when I've asked them, like, are some of these substances, like, do they technically count as psychedelics? Like, is ketamine a psychedelic? And the definition they give me, which I can't repeat verbatim because I don't actually remember. I wish I had it recorded. What I internalized at that time was like, alcohol fits the same de definition. Alcohol also causes people to have an intense spiritual experience a lot of the time where you open up and you're connected to your, you know, hidden subconscious and your psyche. And like, if we're just going to roll out psychedelics as being like, oh, here's the new quick fix, you know, you have uh, kind of a unfavorable status in the socioeconomic order. Well, don't worry, we've got a we've got a pill or we've got a quick fix for that. You can feel very valued and feel very important. And then tomorrow you get right back on the hamster wheel. So I think we're really seeing like a collision of value systems and, and yeah. world order right now. And again, like I don't really profess to have one political ideology or one position, but I just try to make very astute and honest observations of what's happening. And I think satire has been really ideal to sort of crypt, crypt, uh, cryptically dress these observations so as to come off as a critique or social commentary, but not necessarily as like a directed ad hominem attack at one organization or one person, more just like, here's some food for thought, you know, and at the same time, it can be funny. And there's some value in that. Absolutely. I, I like the brave new world uh, take, you know, it's definitely could be a direction we're going in. Graham is better than a dam, you know? Sure. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, I like yeah. Um, so like in your opinion, like, especially since we've sort of established that uh, mushrooms in particular, psilocybin don't fit into this neat box that we're trying to put it in. What do you think that mushrooms are about? Like, do you think they have an intelligence? Do you think they have an agenda? Um, like I've heard people say that they think that mushrooms are like alien intelligence from another dimension that, you know, and, and so it's it's really curious to see the way that these uh, medicines are sort of influencing things subtly. I'm curious about what you think about it. 
Yeah, so I firmly believe there is an innate intelligence embedded within mushrooms and probably a lot of other natural elements as well. I don't I don't necessarily have like a, you know, cohesive framework for how I think <laughs> about them. But what I will say is that some of what you've described, this sort of alien intelligence, a lot of my personal experiences make those kind of points hard to refute. And I think right. where I draw the line is that I'm not really trying to formally grasp everything. I feel like I've you know, built up a rapport as a surfer on these waves rather than trying to, you know, be an ocean scientist who's trying to understand the gravity and the dynamics and, you know, the the mass of the wave. I'm more interested in learning how to ride the wave. And at the end of the day, it's like, what are the tangible improvements in your life and in the world that your relationship or experiences with mushrooms or any other substance confers upon you and your community? I think it's very easy to get bogged down in these like broader ideologies. And for example, like the conspiracy crowd, I'm very interested in that, but I don't live my life like actively concerned about what the CIA is doing, you know, or what the, you know, the alien intelligence, like that doesn't really drive my decisions because I have a sense of, wow, that's interesting. Yeah. I'll read an article about it, but like, how is that going to benefit me? You know, if I'm like my whole prerogative and motivations, uh, the way I go about my life is defined by, you know, what this organization is doing in that place, like, or what, you know, I think that's where I draw the line. It's like, maybe there are some really deeply intelligent presences or entities that come and contact you. And maybe I've had experiences like that, you know, at very high doses over a prolonged time frame. But like, what does that actually mean in my life? And that's where I've sort of come back to, I guess, like a good tax paying member of society, you know, like, am I calling my friends on my birthday? You know, am I being a good husband to my wife? Am I able to, you know, throw a party for the neighborhood and enjoy That's the kind of stuff I think that really counts. So as a lot of like newer psychonauts, I think get embedded or like people really driving this quote psychedelic renaissance, it's easy to get bogged down in these like macro perspectives. And then you kind of get lost in the macro perspectives. And like, what about today? Like, what are you doing on a granular level in your life? And for me, that's why I started the platform as like, I have a background with this stuff. I know how to do it. And it's a good vehicle for me to infuse a lot of my views and things like that and to build. And I'll, I'll happily collaborate with established brands. You know, like I like, as I often say, like, I like to drive on good roads a lot of the time. I like to fly on airplanes. You know, I like to use the tools and machinery and functions that a lot of modern society has gifted us. So like, why would I try to tear a lot of that down? And just to put a, a bow on this thought, like I, I had my friend Bob from Microboost on the podcast yesterday, and he has a lot of, you know, interesting approaches at a very high business level towards how to engage psychedelics in business. And he writes for Rolling Stone magazine and has written about this very topic numerous times. And I saw him in Oakland last year at a conference and he starts off the panel about psychedelics and capitalism, which is such a highly charged sort of topic right now. He's like, who in this room has used money this week? And that's kind of how I feel about it. It's like, it's very easy to get bogged down in these utopian ideologies and visions about the way the future is going to be. But like still, we're deeply embedded in these systems that, you know, they're not going to go away anytime soon. So that's kind of how I approach things. It's like I can do a lot of these like radical ideologies about, you know, the psychonaut who had a vision of an entity and the entity told him 
that he needs to move to Peru and open an ayahuasca center and that, you know, next year crypto is going to be the main thing and the central banks are taking over. I can actually dress all of those viewpoints in a satirical character. That's just that it's just theater. It's mainly ritual. And I can still go about my life, you know, as a pretty ordinary guy. And that's my goal at the end of the day. Like I kind of want to be an unremarkable ordinary person with a very eccentric persona on stage or on the platform. Yeah. What you just said reminds me of uh, like that famous um, sort of Buddhism quote from Jack Hornfield of, you know, after the enlightenment, the laundry, yeah. you know, it's like, uh, it sounds like what, what you're saying is like a lot of, psychonauts are getting caught up with that enlightenment and maybe running off to Peru based on those visions and the laundry is still sitting there, you know? <laughs> so no, I really, I really appreciate that approach and can relate to a lot of that. I'm curious if you would like to share more about how you've learned to surf those waves for yourself and like the, the ways that you've kind of learned to integrate your experiences. Yeah, so I'm definitely not a professional in that regard, but I think for me, part of what was an on-ramp into this community was uh, being, you know, sort of a middle-class artist, creative type playing in a band in California where psychedelics are an extremely integral part of that framework. Like if you yeah. have been part of the artistic community in Los Angeles or San Francisco, or we'll call it like coastal elites, like everybody, <laughs> everybody, you know, has either tried psychedelics or has had access to them. So right. I think during those years of college, I was in a bubble in San Francisco. You know, I had my tuition paid for very you know, thoughtfully and, and, and fortunately, and I had financial aid. But essentially, I didn't have to think about like putting food on the table and having like a nine to five job and all that for a, a period of four years where also psychedelics were a big part of that cultural fabric. You know, I went to school a stone's throw from the hate. There were a lot of people, you know, who had my sort of worldview of coming from a similar background who were going to Golden Gate Park and then connecting with the tech scene. And you just see psychedelics are a big part of this legacy. So I got a chance to like experience reality and psychedelic reality in a bubble, you know? And then after four years, that bubble burst. And all of a sudden it's like, Oh, we're not paying for your rent. You know, you got to go out and, and uh, earn. You got to go out and get a job. And that was like a really difficult transition period where all of a sudden I was like, maybe I don't need to be, you know, having another psychedelic experience and, and you know, building and seeding utopia. Maybe I need to go get up at 530 and start selling chai in the financial district and I need to earn a paycheck. So I kind of saw the psychedelic bubble burst right before me. And then that was a period of probably like 10 years. And that's another reason I think the satire and sort of these critical skeptical views are important is because I think it's really easy to get into a honeymoon phase with psychedelics because they can be sort of an escape, right? If you're living in a certain culture or society, you watch the news, it's very disenchanting what's happening, right? It's like, there's a prolonged war that started. We have a political race where the candidates are, you know, tearing each other apart and dividing communities. It's like, it's pretty easy to want an escape from that. And, you know, to a degree, I think that's where this desire to like go start an eco community off grid, you know, and like get away from the pharma companies and the, the food companies, you know, that are running the world. There's a lot of people who are actively doing that. And like, it's pretty hectic to try to make sense of reality of what's happening right now. So I have that period of like 10 years of like having gone from a honeymoon phase with psychedelics and like, we're going to live in, utopian society and all of this stuff you hear alternate currencies and then like 
oh shit, what do I do now? My rents do, you know, what do I do now? Right. Like to, and uh, so that's been part of my integration is just like, trying to fit back into with what I've learned, you could call it a hero's journey, which is sort of like a crude um, analogy, but I think it applies to like going back home to, okay, how's my relationship with my family, with my brother, with my parents, you know, who still are watching baseball and, you know, not, none of them have ever had a psychedelic experience. So how can I be part of that community and hopefully bring some what, I, what I've learned and hopefully ameliorate or hybridize a little bit with these, you know, pretty established systems. Um, and maybe we can rub off on each other. And uh, so I don't know how well I answered that question, but that's a big part of my integration was like having had to face what I consider to be like kind of a cold, difficult reality um, and do it with love and with care and be like, hey man, I get to go be a teacher today. You know, I teach at a high school. I don't need to go stand on a soapbox and broadcast my psychedelic guru self. Like today I'm just going to teach 14 year olds, how to use Premiere Pro and the Adobe Creative Suite. And like, if I can find something where I can apply some of what I've learned and make it relatable and accessible to like the broad population or, or ordinary society, that's integration for me. Nice. Yeah, no, I can, I can relate to some of that as far as I think we've, we both started out in a space having access and experience with psychedelics, but not necessarily in this sort of puritanical uh, position that's developing of like, you have to do it in a ceremony and it has to be, there has to be this integration and it has to be this way. It has to be that way. Um, you know, I grew up in Southern California as well. And a lot of my early experience was through the rave scene, you know, and it's like there, there were certain sort of shamanic and different frameworks that were very loose, but nothing was like, you have to do it this way, you know? And I remember, um, my, my partner is, you know, very entrenched in the ayahuasca world and, you know, like her, you know, her early psychedelic experience was all ayahuasca and like, these are the frameworks and these are the traditions and this is the way that you do things. And the first time we did, uh, like, she's like, we should do a mushroom ceremony together. I'm like, okay. Um, I didn't know you could do mushrooms in a ceremony. Right. Um, so we sat down and she's like, you're going to lead the ceremony. Uh, okay. You know, cool. And then we started and she started having like, she wasn't having a, an easy time. And I came over and I was like kind of comforting her. And she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm, I'm comforting you. And she's like, but you're touching me. Like, you know, and I'm like, uh-huh. Cause like we're, we're here and it's the two of us. And like, I'm trying to help you out, you know, but the whole, like the whole framework of like, you know, you sit on your mat and you, you're with your medicine. And unless you're like, you know, blowing smoke on me or like singing me Icaros, like you don't really get involved in my process. It was just completely foreign to me. I'm like, no, like we're here. Like let's have some fun too. You know, it doesn't have to be so serious. There's a whole world out there, you know, outside of like this, sort of quote unquote healing, you know, uh, framework that is, that is, is very helpful as well. Like it's been very helpful for me. Um, but you know, there's just, there's so much out there. There's so many different directions that you can take it. And the idea that, you know, people that are working more recreationally, let's say than therapeutically or, you know, um, ceremonially is any less valid 
I think is a little um, presumptuous. And, you know, I, just like what you're saying, it's what are, what are you doing with those experiences? I know for me, the, the medicines that I was working with were pushing me in those directions even before I knew what integration was, even before there was like a framework of like, oh, you could do these different things with us, um, including have a career, you know? So it's, uh, I, I just, it's, it's a really interesting space to be in. And I, I appreciate that you also have that broad view of like, Hey, there's lots of different ways to, to get somewhere. And the most important thing is like, what are you doing with those experiences? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that the future I want to see is one of diplomacy and hybridized approaches where somebody who wants to go a very specific route, like, I hope that's available to them. You know, uh, I'm wary of the idea of like forced perspectives on people where you're saying like, this is the way things are done. Cause like, for example, even when within the ayahuasca community, you talk to different tribes or different healers and different communities, they have different mm -hmm. approaches, right? There's like the Santo Dime approach and the church approach right. and the same, you know, within even within one community, you might find two healers who have different approaches, different admixtures to the ayahuasca. I think that's fundamentally human. But what we're losing, I think, is the the ability to effectively communicate with each other. And, you know, th there is a lot, there's a lot at stake of people trying to convince other people that this is the way it has to be done. And, you know, um, there's a lot to be said about that. But I suppose I'm a champion of cognitive liberty, of people developing their own perspectives. And I'm also a champion of uh, hopefully a more unified, cohesive social fabric, which I think is the real tragedy right now of our era is just how divided a lot of people are. And as someone who has a background in media studies, you know, and was looking, I've been looking at these sort of macro issues for a long time, seeing how media companies exploit that bias. And you're like, you know, you want to have different populations with different views because you're able to sell solutions to them. And you're, for example, it's like pretty well-known authoritarian tactic to destabilize different regions geopolitically, where if it's like in Africa, you know, the Congo has an estimated $24 trillion worth of precious metals, including a lot of minerals that get mined, that get used in things like iPhones or, uh, you know, trans transistor chips and things like this. And though it's very convenient for someone to destabilize those regions by uh, amplifying one creed or one tribe or one political ideology as being better than another. And that's happened historically. It's part of statecraft throughout history. So mm -hmm. these get to broader issues. But I think that that's one of the real tragedies of this era is that when I go to San Diego, you know, where I grew up and I talk to my brother-in-law, who's like deeply, deeply devoted to the Trump worldview, you know, it, it just becomes this sense of tribalism. And for me, I'm not like attached to one political candidate or another, but this idea that like my candidate, my leader, my person can solve all these problems and you guys are a bunch of idiots, like that's where we're gonna collapse, I think. And that's where a lot of power structures benefit from those kinds of things. And, yeah. uh, you know, so I, I think like, for example, psychedelics are one little arena, but they tie to all these broader geopolitical, sociocultural issues that like, if you're a psychedelic thought leader or an evangelist, and you're not prepared to like see how these experiences map on to these broader sort of global civilizational contexts. Like, what are you doing? You know, you can't solve problems in an echo chamber. Whatever you're experiencing as an individual in the quote spirit realm, et cetera, that has to give you some kind of perspective about how to solve these 
very real and persistent problems that we're facing, be it ecologically or sociologically or, you know, um, so I, I think, but then it becomes like, how do you actually uh, take action there? Like, what are your tangible steps you're taking to hopefully contribute towards a small improvement in your own life and your own community, et cetera? Yeah, like be, being the change you want to see in the world, you know, before you start trying to change the whole world. Yeah, it's it's curious that you said that, you know, um, <laughs> my partner and I were having a conversation yesterday. We were talking about uh, sort of the political state of the country right now and especially like the amount of identity politics are in. And she said something. She's like, I wonder how psychedelics are kind of coming under the radar of all this. And to me, it sort of hits on exactly what you said, which is psychedelics are destabilizing in a certain way. You know, they're definitely a disruptor. And so I wonder if there is sort of this, we can look the other way a little bit and let the psychedelic uh, disruption continue because it is disruptive and it is a little destabilizing and, uh, you know, nobody's paying attention to these other bigger issues over here. You know, it's like, oh, you guys go play with your mushrooms and, you know. <laughs> A hundred percent. I mean, I personally think, you know, I have a lot of views that I don't always espouse and try to like um, cryptically dress them because at the end of the day, like I've often been very vocal about this, like whoever these, you know, architects of power be that are trying to drive certain agendas, like I'll happily meet with you. You know, like <laughs> I've been pretty yeah. unabashed about that. Like I'm not this kind of psychonaut who's saying like, we need to tear down the system, man. I think that there's room to improve the system. I think that should be the goal of anything. And I think there always should be conflict. Like conflict can be healthy, but we need a healthy conflict. You know, you need to have healthy debates, like healthy viewpoints that are, you know, head and head against each other and, and diplomatically engaged. But I think that right now we have a breakdown in communications between people, yeah. between classes, between political ideologies. And like, that is only going to benefit bad actors, if you ask me, you know, who's who's if somebody is coming in and just use an example of like a region where there's a lot of natural, you know, uh, riches and or like um, social capital, we could call it or like hu human capital, which is, you know, uh, human resources, a weird term. Like if people are fighting each other and there's very tangible and direct examples of this throughout history. If those people are fighting each other, who benefits is the person who wants to keep all the little parties fighting against each other. You know, there are bad actors, in my opinion, that want disenfranchised veterans angry at undocumented immigrants crossing the border. When in reality, both those people have so much in common. And it's like, you know, there, there's right. a way of like astroturfing and amplifying those things so that it seems like the southern border, which I grew up on, those immigrants are going to take your jobs in middle America. It's like. Yeah, you would be lucky if they did, you know, uh, in my opinion, like they would be doing a hell of a job. So but that's the idea is like these little actors and, you know, in New England, back in the industrial era there, which, you know, is waning to a degree. But during the height of the industrial era, there were different factory owners that intentionally would source different employees from different countries and ethnic groups so that they couldn't communicate with each other in the same language and they couldn't unionize and they would be, you know, arguing at each other. And I've still seen that, you know, I've worked in Saudi Arabia for a very large defense contractor, a government Raytheon. Well, I didn't work for Raytheon. I worked for a smaller contractor that embedded me within that ecosystem of other contractors. Right. And you would have the lunch tables of the black dudes from Alabama and the white dudes from Kentucky. 
And I would sit with both of them, you know, because I'm from San Diego. I'm used to very different. And they would be telling me things about the other person, about how, like, yeah, like, you shouldn't trust that person. They, they did this. And I'm the whole time I'm thinking, like, you guys are both contractors, you know, working for this megalithic corporation, if you will. So, again, that's just kind of my the way I think and the way my brain works is like, why don't you guys just kind of like team up and look for some common ground? You got to work together. You know, who does it benefit if you guys are pointing fingers at each other? Uh, and, and maybe it's the same in the psychedelic community. You know, maybe it's like, okay, so that person works for a corporate company and you're maybe like a independent disruptor and you're saying like, we need to bring that down. It's like, who does it benefit if there's destabilization? Like for me, it's bad actors. And I think there are good actors too at every level. There's good actors at high level of government, good actors at high level of the United Nations, of uh, pharmaceutical companies. You know, I do believe there are good actors in that. And we have this, like, it's the flavor of the time right now to group people in one group. Be like pharma, bad, pharmaceutical company, bad, you know, uh, bureaucrat, bad. It's like, how do you know? Have you ever talked to these people? Have you ever sat down, you know, at a table and, and had lunch with them? So that's kind of my take on it. Yeah. It sounds like you have a lot of curiosity, which is, you know, the opposite of judgment and that there's a lot of value in just, you know, curiosity and like finding the, the similarities or just the humanity and like being willing to meet people as people rather than like throwing a label on them or getting upset about maybe the things that you don't agree with a hundred percent, which is, is judgment, right? Like once you've sort of made this judgment, it shuts down that curiosity or those channels of communication. And you just have a, a, a opinion to defend, you know, a, a, a hill to die on. And so it sounds like you, you know, have a lot of opportunity to, explore that curiosity with the meetings that you have and the, the people that you're exposed to. And it's a pretty cool position to be in. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd like to think so. You know, I think uh, there's also a tendency for everybody to think they're an authority. You know, there's, it's especially with psychedelics. I've, this is kind of a through line in my work is this idea that people have this unearned sense of authority a lot of the time, because that's the way I think social media has influenced that where it's like, you kind of have to compare yourself or you can't help but compare yourself to what other people are doing. So what does that do? It's like, you want to amplify what you're doing. You know, you want to position yourself as, you know, I'm this important thought leader person, but in doing so, like you might actually be lying to yourself, you know? And I think that there's a very poetic and very beneficial terrain that you can you can apply to what you're doing where it's like oh i don't know that much you know and that's the opposite of hubris that's more a sense of humility and so like questions about even like when i'm doing podcasts i feel a little bit uneasy because you know these are a lot of times like strains of thought that are constantly evolving you know like you you might catch me a month from now after i've met some other people and my tune has changed a little bit and i do think that there should be some hills you die on and you should figure out what that is but for a lot of stuff like we should not be so malleable and rigid in our views because that's assuming that we know a lot more than we do. And, you know, there's that saying like, the more I see, the less I know. I think that is sort of the mark of a true, I guess, psychonaut or someone is that like, you've seen enough, you've seen a lot, and then you realize like, okay, I have this one small lens to apply to things, but why should I think that that, you know, it's like that, uh, 
metaphor of the elephant, of somebody's grabbing the trunk, somebody's touching the side, somebody's touching the tail. You have part of the answer. So to think that you know better than someone else is to say like, I know everything and I'm better than you. And I think that we need to actually uh, actively cultivate a more humble way of thinking of like, yeah, like I have some really powerful, valid experiences, but they're just that, you know, it's not the whole answer. It's just one perspective to approach a very broad, expansive, evolving ecosystem of challenges with. Yeah. Your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I find that really interesting. And I, th I think that's been something that I've really appreciated about getting to know you a little bit, you know, through social media and the fact that you've been really accessible and you know, generous with your time when I've reached out and asked you questions and, um, which is really cool. Cause there's like, there's a lot of people that seem really accessible and then they just don't reply to you. And I don't mind, like, I wouldn't mind if somebody said like, Hey man, I'm super busy and I don't have time to have this conversation with you. Like I would understand that, but like, just be a human being and respond, you know, is this like the nice thing to do. And you've been, you've been super generous um, I, so far I've taken the, the tact with my own company, my own brand, whatever you want to call it, where I'm like, I just want to be authentic and I want to, I want to learn on the journey, you know? And it's funny. I got like an email this morning from somebody and they were like, I re I really like X, Y, and Z about your Instagram. I, I love what you're talking about, about nervous system regulation and using mushrooms to help with integration. But man, your engagement sucks. Like you should be, you should have so much more engagement than you, than you have. And like, if you just worked with me, you could have all that. And I'm like, but why would I want that? You know, like, isn't the journey that I'm on the things that I'm learning enough, you know, like, and the fact that it's authentic, that I don't have to sit here and pretend like I know what I'm doing, um, that I can show my flaws uh, or the mistakes that I've made or, and just say like, Hey man, this is where I'm at. And maybe, maybe in a couple of years, I'll be ready to work with somebody that's going to polish up my image and, you know, take me to the next level. But I think a lot of that is just what you're saying. Like social media has created this, this thing that we feel like we have to do. We have to look a certain way. We have to show up a certain amount of times. And, you know, we're, we're showing this particular side of ourselves instead of just being like authentic you know? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's, that's one of the themes of my work and it's something that I've had to battle too. And I'm, I'm proud to say that when people have run into me in public, which has been a trip to like get recognized, like I was in a restaurant in Rio de Janeiro, my wife was working with PlayStation and we got to do a shoot down there and I went and then, uh, somebody came up to me and they're like, no way it's you. Like I watch your videos and all that. And I was wearing a really funky outfit and I was like very gregarious with him. And he's like, I'm so pleased to say, to see that, like, that's not just a character. And I think that's like, that's what I'm about is like a sense of playfulness, fun and authentic connection. Because at the end of the day, like you can fake it, quote unquote, until you make it. It's like you are skipping over so many valuable learning opportunities and connections. And like, I realized very soon, like into what I was doing that, like, me building authentic connections with people and, you know, showing up to things and, you know, organizing events, like that's, what's going to carry this quote brand or project through to the end, because there's a saying easy come easy go. And if you pay for something and you just say like, you know, I'm going to 10 X my engagement, or I'm going to do this or do that, then 
you know, I put out something and those people are the, I've never paid for anything like that, but like when a wave has come, maybe my work got shared and went viral or whatever, all these people come on and then they, they disagree with something you say, they're gone. And I remember I literally said that to someone where they showed up one day and talked about, you know, what an amazing portfolio of work and this and that. And then like two days later, they took issue with one of my takes on something and they're like, I'm unfollowing. And I was like, easy come, easy go. You know what I mean? Like uh, yeah. you want to work to, and, and I think that's where the value is personally, a little plug for these conferences and for this circuit is like, if you can make it out and meet in person with different stakeholders and different people, you can see like what good work people are doing, how much they're trying. And there's been plenty of times where people have told me, they're like, man, I thought you were an asshole. You know, like I thought, you know, you're just like out here making fun of microdosing coaches. And then we hang out and we chat and it's like, now we're buddies and we're texting each other and all that. And like, that's what I want to see happen on the way forward. And I realize like not everyone in the whole world is able to go to all these conferences and things, but like you could do the same thing in your own community, you know, go to a psychedelic society meetup, like go to a mycological society meetup, get off of the timeline and get into person with people. And like, quite frankly, that's how I sort of knew that this project I was in was going to be successful is there were enough people in real life that I have networked with, you know, I've hosted an event down here and I'm going to host another one soon where I live and people come. And the idea is to be intentional and to engage with people, to eat meals together, to go foraging in the woods together, because those people are going to be the ones that you're building with long-term. And like, I've run a small business for like eight years now with my wife. And it's like, we've never had to advertise once because it's word of mouth. It's people sharing your work being like, Hey, my friend does this. Oh, you're going to like this. You know, like if I see a random creator online and I don't have that authentic connection to them, like, you know, there, there's a million people to choose from. So I guess my tact that I would do is like invest in the small circle, you know, build small, build organic, build authentic. And how many customers or clients do you need? Like if you roll out a service or a product and you have 30 people or 50 people who actively are hiring you for your services, whatever they are, even less, like that's going to carry your business through this idea that I'm just going to get, you know, a million leads and what, like, I don't know, maybe I'll change tact. Maybe that's effective if done in the right way. But like, I can guarantee you, if you show up for your friends, you show up for community, you know, I'm flying out to LA for the California psychedelic conference. Cause those are my people, not because, you know, no one's paying me to go out there. Like I'm going out because I want to be on the ground, hanging out with people, you know, catching up, building new relationships. That's, what's going to carry the brand through for whatever you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's been this like interesting pivot I've been going through. Cause, um, you know, like for a while I was, I really felt strongly about sort of jumping on the integration coaching wave and like that I could kind of carve my niche there. And then for the last six months, I've been doing breath work and meditation and somatic work at an inpatient, you know, a treatment center for behavioral health and, and substance abuse. And when I had that opportunity came up, I was like, well, I don't know if I should take this because this is the direction I've been trying to push myself in for the last couple of years is, and, and where do psychedelics fit into that? Right. And then I had this like epiphany a couple of months ago where I'm like, wait, I'm not being authentic to my experience. If I'm like, I'm just going to do this psychedelic integration coaching thing, you know, like breath work is a big part of who I am and like how I feel I can support people.
and meditation and somatic work. And yes, psychedelics are one, you know, tool, one method that can integrate into all of that. But one, the other part that I was like, you know, this is really interesting is like, even though like the people I'm helping in my private practice and the people I'm helping that are patients at this, you know, uh, treatment center are at completely different places in their journey. A lot of what they're working with is the same stuff. It's like, I'm trying to like get help for my anxiety, for my depression. I'm trying to figure out like how to not be stuck. I'm trying to get over addiction. And it was like, well, wait, if I'm trying to be this person instead of being who I am authentically, I'm like cutting out this whole big part of who I actually am. And I don't want to do that anymore. You know, I'd rather just be authentic and like be happy being authentic. Cause like, that's where I found the most happiness personally is just in authenticity, you know, and make, like you say, making connections. That was like, that was when I reached out to you. I was like, you know what? Like Dennis is an amazing guy. I'd love to have a conversation with him on the podcast, you know? Um, so yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a really neat place to be in just saying like, I'm just going to be authentic and the people that are supposed to be around and that are into that will be there. And I don't need everyone in the world or in the industry to like me or to, you know, be on my wave as long as I'm having a good time with, with where I'm at, you know? And I think you win when your community wins, you know, if you're yeah. a rising tide lifts all boats. So it's like, if you're showing up for people, which also like, I don't know, like so much of the stuff I do, and I'm sure some of the stuff that other people are doing is like, it's unpaid because money is not the motivating factor for a lot of these things. It's like, can I actually <laughs> help this person? Can I actually build an authentic rapport? And like, yeah. there's so many stories like this, but you'd be amazed. Like my wife has a story where, uh, the job she got in college for basically the whole time she was in college, it was because there was one student in her class who I don't remember the exact context, but had a disability and that my wife showed kindness and, you know, strength and was helping this person when a lot of other person, you know, would avoid them. And then they got them hooked up because they had some connection to this other job. And it's like, there was, you know, I imagine lots of people would have helped that person if there was a guaranteed bonus result to be like, you know, but it's the fact that like, you know, there's been plenty of scenarios like that in my life where it's just like, you just show kindness to people. You don't do it because it's transactional. That's something I've learned through yeah. psychedelics. You know, it's like, I don't need to uh, charge for everything. Now, the other side of that is if somebody from an established company is asking me to do something, of course, I'm going to charge them money. You know, there's this sense of like, right. oh, we're, fr we're friends, right? It's like, yeah, but you got like a six or seven figure hustle going on. And I have a brand too. Like I can't do favors for everyone. But I think it's that idea of like, you're not always driven in your authenticity and your work by transactionality. You know, it's more like, yeah. Ooh, I, I know these friends, I know these people, they're doing something awesome. I want to show up for them. I have some skills that might be able to help them. I want to do that. And like, if you take that approach, in my experience, that leads to really good end results because you're helping your community win. You know, you're helping people win. And especially when they're sort of marginalized people, it's so easy for polite society to disregard that and be like, oh, that person can't help me. They don't have any money. You know, they don't have any connections. But it's like, maybe that's the person who really, really needs the help. You know, not this other person that's going to, you know, I scratch your back, you scratch my back. I share your posts, you share my posts. It's like... I don't know, man, maybe, maybe these people that are kind of in the blind spot, we should be 
paying attention to them. And the, the last thought I'll close with there is there's a young woman uh, who runs Plur Productions. Her name is Paula, and she's very well known. And I was at South by Southwest this year. And South by Southwest just has all of these, you know, fancy, you know, well-funded tech companies, AI companies, the psychedelic companies, all of that. And I saw Paula walking with the janitor, talking to the janitor. And there was just something so humanizing about that because I'd seen those janitors walking by with all of these, you know, groups with fancy clothes and on their phones, just walking by like this person with the trash can wasn't a part of this conference. And there was, you know, the world sees that kind of stuff. And there was something so beautiful. And I told her about it after I saw her on stage. I was like, that was the coolest thing you could have done to just like see you walking slowly with this person, humanizing them and connecting with them when everybody else was walking by. It's interesting that you brought that up because one of the things I was going to ask is like, who's inspiring you right now? Like, who are the people that maybe you would like to give a shout out to or like really highlight that you're meeting that are inspiring you? Love this question. Yeah, so I'm very inspired by my local community. I work with a couple of different groups in the south of Mexico, and it's a joy and a privilege to work with them because they're the, the exact types of groups that are scrappy, resourceful, operating from the heart, operating on an authentic community basis. And one of those groups is called Fungaria, and they are based here in, or in Tuxla, which is the capital of Chiapas. And they are university-educated mycologists and biologists who go out and, and document the funga of Chiapas, which is one of the most understudied funga ecosystems in the world, with an estimated 50,000 different types of mushrooms, only 2% of which have been described by science. So like you're talking about true citizen scientists who are Chiapanecan, who are from here, homegrown. And they're out there in the forest constantly. One of them, uh, Ezekiel, who's my good friend, Ezekiel, is in Mexico City right now getting his master's degree, studying a particular type of ectomycorrhizal fungi, particular type of fungi that uh, works specifically with one particular type of tree in Chiapas. So those guys are awesome because they're doing all this incredible game-changing work with zero funding and virtually zero recognition. So like, that's where I come in as I go, I got to amplify what you're doing. Like you guys are incredible and you have, you know, you're doing it sort of in a vacuum. And now they're starting to connect with other organizations, which is good. So I want to shout out Fungaria, huge proponent. And they've invited me to be a founding member, an honorary member of Fungaria, which is great. Like they withheld their first anniversary party until I got back from a trip so that I could be a part of it. Like that's very dignifying and gratifying and humbling for me. Um, another one is Simeo Auto Cultivo, and they are cannabis cultivators who are very involved with the local community who go out and support indigenous women cultivators who are cultivating cannabis for the Mexican market, you know, out in the, in the villages as they call them or the communities. So Simeo Auto Cultivo, they ran the first cannabis cup in Chiapas. And I covered that and got it published in global cannabis times. And, you know, I'm, I'm with them constantly when I'm here. So a couple there, I want to shout out a restaurant called Con Con, K apostrophe A-N, K apostrophe A-N. And if you follow any of my work, you're going to see all of these people come up repeatedly, but th they are local mycopreneurs here in the town that I'm in who have a restaurant that's built around fungi that they grow. So yesterday I was there and had a lion's mane mushroom burrito. They've got shawarmas. They've got 
pies with different shiitake, lion's mane, oyster that they're all cultivating. And to me, they exemplify these types of small organizations, the future I want to see, which is much more collaborative. It's smaller companies that have enough of a customer base where it's like, I want to go there, not just because I'm hungry, but because I want to go hang out with my friends. I want to go there. They have game night. You know, I want to play Settlers of Catan or whatever. I want to read books. They've got different psychedelic books. So if anybody's interested in meeting these people, uh, we are going to be hosting a mushroom festival July 12th through 16th in San Cristobal de las Casas, Chiapas. So more info on that. That's also in partnership with very heavyweight mycologists, including Felipe Ruan Soto, which is one of the, the foremost mycologists academically uh, working with the funga or the fungi of Chiapas specifically. So that's all coming up soon. And then as far as like in the broader, like United States and, you know, more familiar names, I'm super inspired by Reggie Harris and by Oakland Haife, because I think they also exemplify a lot of the community driven, you know, needs based production of events and services. It's not that they're trying to create a market. They're trying to help their community and respond to the challenges and to adapt to them, to give people effective means of grappling with and overcoming a lot of these challenging scenarios. And like, I've seen a lot of people preach social justice and equity and things like that as lip service, you know, but like what I've seen Oakland Haife do, like they're in the hood, you know, they're bringing, they're giving 70 tickets out to people who would never be able to afford these types of networking events. You know, they're providing uh, donation based services and integration circles and microdoses and things like that. So I've been really inspired by that whole community. And I've also met a lot of incredible, incredible people through that community. So that's one, Reggie Harris, Ian Bollinger, Mama De La Mico, Monica Kadena, that whole crowd, which the names go on and on and on. Uh, David Poplin of Humboldt Mycology is very inspiring to me. He's a world-class cultivator, has an academic and professional background with uh, biology and the life sciences and so on. And the dude is so heart-centered and heart-driven with everything he does, so authentic. So him and I got a hotel room split for this conference in LA this weekend. Looking forward to seeing him. Alex Dorr is a huge inspiration to me from Mushroom Revival. You know, that's one of the foremost functional mushroom companies in the United States. They had the first USDA-certified organic cordyceps farm in the United States. And he's a super humble, super chill dude, always learning, so approachable. And, you know, he's really inspired, I think, early on when I got him on the podcast and then he came down to visit me. I stayed with him when I was in Austin for South by Southwest, just kind of seeing the way he goes about his business. And it's like no nonsense, you know, super humble, but the business is airtight, you know, flying and firing on all cylinders. And there's something very inspiring about that. And I guess the last one I'll say here off the top of my head is Lucid News. I think there's such an important platform. I've been very fortunate to write for them, but I've written for a number of platforms and Lucid News has something very special about them. You know, they're very serious with their journalistic integrity. They're also very open to publishing counter viewpoints to maybe the dominant narrative, if you will, and being critical of some of these power players, but while being in the same rooms as them, right? And being like a robust, independent and bankable journalistic platform, which is so essential. That's what I'm trying to do with Micopreneur is like, 
you are independent, you know, but you need to be super high quality, super reliable. People need to be able to know that they can trust you and your content and your viewpoints uh, because it's very bewildering to navigate the media ecosystem and especially psychedelics. Like, who do we turn to? You know, who, who's which platform is getting funding from which particular organization to push one particular viewpoint or ideology? And like, there may come a point in time where you have to, I have to navigate that, right? But like, I think independent, high quality media is so important and journalistic coverage and Lucid does that so well. So those are kind of my plugs off the top of my head. And as far as who's there, love Ken Jordan. He's the founder and CEO, co-founder. Love Faye that I work with as my editor there. Marisa Sturtz is wonderful. She's a co-founder and is doing a ton for the community. And, and then I guess the final one I'll say is Breaking Convention. Breaking Convention to me has been sort of head and shoulders above any of the other psychedelic conferences I've seen in regards to their professionalism, quality, scientific legitimacy, but also the fact that the people running it are actual psychonauts. They're actual people with psychedelic, you know, respect for the legacy of psychedelics. And I can't necessarily say the same thing for some of the other larger conferences that I've seen. Mm. Yeah. Thanks for sharing all that. Uh, it's interesting that you mentioned Oakland Hyphy. Um, I just had a second conversation with uh, Dave Hodges and he was like, we got to bring, I, I, I don't know if it's Reggie, but somebody high up in the Oakland Hyphy organization on to, uh, to talk of, about kind of where they're going in terms of safety and accessibility. And um, so that's, that's super cool. Totally. Um, I wanted to ask you one other thing before we um, kind of wrap up. Um, Cause you, you know, it seems like you're having a lot of fun as well as just being, just a powerhouse in terms of the business stuff that you're doing. And, and really, you know, like you got your irons and a lot of fires as the saying goes. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the psychedelic puppet show and like how that came about and like where that's going and just a little more about that. Totally. Yeah. That's something that we're actively rolling out. We had the first episode launch in March and we're going to be participating in the Portal event, which is an official after party for psychedelic science in Denver. And we get to link up with other heavy hitters on that project. Double Blinds involved. Fireside is involved. The musical artist Bonobo is going to be playing as well as East Forest. So that's like a really awesome event where we have a little room where we're going to be showing some of the work that we've done. But essentially how it came about is I got invited into that project through my friend Rod Siraj, who also is just an incredible connector, thinker, angel investor, technologist based in Canada. And Rod and I had been very friendly with each other for a number of years up to this point because of our mutual interest in satire and in comedy. And he cold reached out to me one day and was just like, dude, you're awesome. Your content is hilarious. I want to loop you into this project that we're doing. And that came out of a similar, uh, as far as I understand, the genesis of the idea was at a retreat in, uh, in BC, Canada, right? So uh, wherever that is, the West Coast of Canada, near Vancouver. And it was a small group, including Pam Criscow, who's a you know world-renowned doctor and, and uh, activist in the psychedelic space for many years, and also the partner of Paul Stamets. So that kind of crowd is very interested in developing what the puppet show is about. And the whole, the whole purpose behind it is to really make 
the history, the science, the stories of psychedelics accessible and fun and palatable to a bigger audience. It's something that I think Mycopreneur has done well also as like, okay, there's a lot of these small circles. There's a lot of, you know, like the Arrowids and the, the conference circuit and stuff, but like, how do we get this message out into like classrooms, you know, and into uh, broader audiences? And one way to do that is with pop culture and with something that's fun and puppets is just like kind of a silly, zany, fun idea. So we just started brainstorming. We have been having weekly Zoom meetings for, I don't know, six months now or so. And the goal of it is to continue to roll it out. We're treating it like a startup. We're incorporated as a nonprofit. We have a board of directors, which I'm on. And like everybody loves the idea. So now it's just about continuing to actually execute on that vision and getting more content out. And the leader of that has been Brad, who's kind of the de facto director of a lot of the creative stuff. So yeah, I mean, everybody's pumped on it. I'm pumped on it. I think that this weekend is gonna be a good operator, sorry, uh, psychedelic science in three weeks is going to be another good opportunity to kind of like continue the public launch of this stuff. And I got to do a little puppet interview with Rick Doblin, which is like one of the highlights of my micropreneur platform is getting to literally have a Rick Doblin puppet, which I have right here and interview Rick. And he, he was thrilled. He thought it was hilarious and asked if we could do it again. And I quite frankly like to have other puppets of other, you know, visible people in the space uh, made so that we could do puppet interviews with them. And that's kind of the, the long arc of how it came about, but it's something that everybody involved is doing it out of the, the charity and grace of their heart, because we think that this is a really fun, potentially impactful project. Yeah. The fun and grace of their heart, but also like what we were kind of saying earlier of like, just the having fun and being, not taking yourself too seriously. Right. Like, you know, I mean, you gotta, you gotta be in, a, in that space a little bit to have a puppet version of yourself. Right. Like, and, and to me that kind of speaks to the integration and value that psychedelics has probably had in their lives as well. You know, it's like that you can make fun of yourself a little bit, can have fun with it, can not take yourself super seriously. So that, that's really awesome. I'm really excited to see how that project continues to roll out. Same, man. Yeah, I think all of us are. And then I guess my final piece for that whole thing is like, I've gained so much from the conference circuit, you know, and like, as far as pouring gasoline on your fire or like, you know, spreading what you're doing, like, if anybody's interested, like, I couldn't think of a better way to get on the fast track than to go connect with people in person authentically and build together. And yeah, sometimes there's an expense involved and it's an investment. And in my experience, like that, that, that investment is so necessary and crucial if you do want to move forward, like in the, you know, uh, the, the renaissance, if you will, or sorry, the industry level of things, you know, yeah. uh, if you're not interested in that, you probably can skip a lot of the stuff. But like, if you do want to figure out what everyone's doing and network and all that, there's nowhere better than a lot of these conferences and that I've written about this for psychedelics today, but there are totally ways to hack them. There are totally ways to, you know, I know people who show up at conferences who don't buy a ticket and they just go to the after parties. You get the same kind of in-person networking, right? Without the stage and the panels and all that. There's volunteer opportunities. Like almost every conference will need somebody taking tickets or, you know, taking photos or whatever. So like, that's my little call to action is if you really are about it, even if you have to pony up some cash for the plane ticket or you have to, you know, find a ride with someone like I do that all the time where I'm like, you know, hey, man, I really want to go out to Miami. I can't really justify, you know, the flight and the hotel. 
put it out to your network. And that's where those relationships come in. If you've built relationships and just be like, Hey man, I'll stay on the air mattress, you know, in your kitchen or whatever. Uh, I just really want to be at this conference and host people on the other end of that. People come down to where I'm at. I'm like, I got a room for you or whatever. So like, you know, the more of those opportunities you see, the more you'll see, like, it's not this impersonal business that's just trying to sell you stuff. It's actually a network of people that you can lean into and vice versa. Yeah. Nice. Uh, well, Dennis, this has been amazing. Uh, really great to talk with you. And, um, you know, before we wrap up, um, where should people go to, to connect? Yeah, probably the best place is Instagram, Mycopreneur Podcast. If you Google Mycopreneur, M-Y-C-O, well, it'll be attached, Mycopreneur. Like I've got all the properties related to that are mine. So I try to go cross-platform, LinkedIn, Dennis Walker, easy to find in person at a lot of these events. And yeah, like I'm super interested in building with people, connecting with people. I'll answer every message. But also, you know, there's a limited bandwidth I have in terms of like what I can get involved with. So that's kind of my rally cry, too, is like, I'm happy to you know support your project. But like the more defined and ready to go it is, the more of an opportunity we might be have to you know amplify it. Or I just got a funny message. I'll just share this. This is an example of the ty types of messages I get where somebody wrote me today and they're like, hey, man, I was on LSD last week and I put out an appeal for Lionel Messi to join the Barcelona Barcelona Football Club again, and it has 400 likes. Can you help to amplify this message that that Bar that Lionel Messi needs to join Barcelona again? And maybe it will happen because it was on LSD. And I'm just like, it's like this big ass paragraph, and I'm like, dude, maybe Lionel Messi will join Barcelona again. But like, I don't know how much service I can be to this particular project, you know. <laughs> That's awesome. I love how you just dropped right into like the micropreneur sort of persona with that. Totally. Like it's just, yeah, it's just such a, such a great like outlet to have that, you know? <laughs> totally. Yeah. Uh, but thanks, man. I really enjoyed this. You know, I, I very much enjoy what you do and I, I'll be supportive of it, you know, as, and I'm looking forward to seeing you in person in a couple yeah. weeks. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to it as well. And like, it really was a mutual friend of ours, um, Caesar of Cultivating Wisdom that like kind of kept nudging me about coming to the conference. He's like, you got to come to PS23. Like, it's going to be amazing. You, you're really going to like, it's really going to help you out. And um, so yeah, you know, it's just, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to the experience and definitely being able to uh, meet in person for sure. Most definitely. Well, thanks, man. It's been great. I sincerely hope you found value and inspiration and hopefully a few laughs in this episode. If it struck a chord with you, I'd be incredibly grateful if you could take a moment and leave a review for the podcast. It's a simple cost-free way to show support and help more like-minded people discover the show. We all have to pay those algorithm troll tolls. Also, make sure you sign up for the newsletter at bluemagicalchemy.com to be the first to get updates, exclusive content, and insights delivered directly to your inbox. It's a fantastic way to stay connected and keep the journey and cultivating of wisdom going. And speaking of cultivating wisdom, don't forget to go to cultivatingwisdom.net and use the code tvp 20 for 20% off at checkout. Friends, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Remember, it's not about the method you choose or the pace at which you travel, 
The vital point is to consistently show up for yourself and practice. As the saying goes, it's not the destination, but the journey that truly matters. And I'm honored to accompany you on yours. Please don't hesitate to reach out, connect, share your journey, successes and challenges and the like. I'm just an email, DM or review away. Thank you again for tuning in. Until our next episode, keep exploring, keep growing, and above all, keep practicing because that's the vital point.